So then, in this six-part series, we're going to look at connecting those two worlds, connecting the dots by way of examining the formation of the Bible, uh, the rise of orthodoxy in the birth of the creeds, um, the, the formation of the, the, the rise of the, the, the bishops, and the birth of apologetics as a distinct form of evangelism, engaging with the intellectual world of the day, as well as, of course, uh, looking at persecution as force and influence on the creation of the church as, as we know it. But today, we'll look at the phenomenon of church growth, the birth of the church herself, and the reasons behind uh, her astonishing growth in a very short space of time. Uh, Before we begin, though, um, a quick explanation of this word, uh, Catholic. This word can have many different meanings depending on the context in which it is used. At its most basic level... Uh, The word means uh, all-inclusive, universal, all-embracing. So then, for example, someone who claims to have Catholic tastes in music is saying that they like every single different type of music, all-embracing, universal. Um, And early in the second century AD, the bishop of of Antioch, a man named Ignatius, wrote, wherever Jesus Christ is, there is the Catholic church. And by the end of the second century, the the 100s, the term Catholic was widely used to talk about the church as a global movement. Christians understood themselves to belong to the Catholic church, meaning the worldwide universal spiritual fellowship of all true believers, in contrast to the idea of just scattered local congregations. And they understood themselves to belong to the Catholic Church in another sense also. Uh, The church had one set of beliefs articulated in creeds in contrast to the myriad heretical groups that had also sprung up during that time. Uh, You may have noticed that from time to time we say together the Apostles' Creed which includes, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Or sometimes we say the Nicene Creed, which includes, we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. The Anglican Church is a Catholic church, and I am a Catholic Christian in the two ways that I'm talking about today belonging to one true universal fellowship of all true believers. If I was to say, unless you're an Anglican, you cannot be saved, uh, then, then that would be something completely different. But, but no, a, a, as, as a Christian who happens to worship in an Anglican con- context, I'm aware that I'm part of a global, universal, all-embracing, one true fellowship of all true believers in Jesus, irrespective of, of denominational tradition. Um, And I'm part of a movement that assents to doctrinal orthodoxy, believing in biblical Christianity as outlined in the Apostolic, Nicene, and Athanasian creeds. Now, the word Catholic has other meanings too. 
but that is a story for uh, another day. Well, <coughs> between the day of Pentecost in the early 30s AD and the year 312 AD, the Catholic Church grew so fast that it was like something of an explosion. Its growth was so spectacular that, that it was phenomenal, a phenomenon that many people have, have, have studied in order to try to understand it. Many have called it the improbable growth of the early church because it just seems so unlikely. One author writes, quote, The growth of the Christian church in the Roman Empire is mysterious. Scholars who spend their entire lives studying this phenomenon continue to find it surprising. At the time of the ascension, on the day that Jesus went back into heaven and all the believers went back to Jerusalem to, to gather to pray, um, after all of the different resurrection appearances, the total number of Christians in the whole wide world was 120. See Acts chapter 1, verse 15. In other words, all of the Christians in the entire world could have been comfortably seated in this room except for social distancing. But this room is, is registered to seat 150. So the whole global church could have been seated at St. Barnabas West Beaverton. Well, 300 years later, and it's estimated that in the region of 8 to 12% of the population of the whole Roman Empire was Christian. In other words, perhaps there were as many as five to six million Christians in the world. And that's roughly three times the population of Perth. By 312 AD, the church was global and included the whole world as people of that time understood it. Congregations in Britain and Southern Europe and all around the Mediterranean Sea from Spain through to Italy, Greece, the Near East, uh, Egypt, uh, North Africa, out into the Middle East, as far as Persia, some congregations indeed as far away as India. Um, and this growth is indeed extraordinary when you consider the following things. Firstly, unlike other religious faith movements, Christianity did not spread by way of invasion or imposition or new laws. No one was compelled to become a Christian at sword, at the point of a sword. Indeed, on the contrary, technically it was illegal to be a Christian from about AD 70 through to 312 AD. And I'll talk more about that in another place. Um, indeed, not just illegal, Christians were hated, despised, blamed for every conceivable misfortune. All kinds of rumors were spread about what it was that Christians did when they gathered in their secret or semi-secret societies. Um, misunderstandings, rumors, and things that they had heard, many people thought that Christians were atheists and animals. In short, Christians were unpopular. And Christians, by and large, did no intentional evangelism. They did not 
set about discussing mission strategy. They did not invite their friends to read the Bible with them. If they did, they might find themselves lunch for a lion. No, rather, they tended to think of evangelism as something that had already been done in New Testament times in the age of the apostles by the apostles themselves, and that the office of evangelist had closed at the end of New Testament times. When Christians were put to death in the arena, they sometimes declined the invitation to speak to the crowds about what it was that they actually believed what it was that they were dying for. They did not invite their friends to church. They met largely in secret, and they often had guards on the doors to bar entrance to anyone they didn't already know. And if you did want to apply for membership, uh, if you did want to attend a church service, well, you had to have others who would vouch for you. And even then, you weren't allowed to attend a proper worship service until you'd been baptized. And the catechism classes leading up to baptism, well, that took about three years. Given all of this, how can we account for the spectacular growth of the church during this seminal time? Well, of course, it's difficult. We know that the pastors are God, that our God, for whom there's nothing but respect, but our God has himself vouchsafed the harvest. 100 times, 60 times, 30 times, that which was sown. Miracles are up, says the Lord God Almighty. But God usually uses means when it comes to his miracles, vehicles for his miracles. So how did the Christians of the early church, how did they accidentally or on purpose make themselves fit for such purpose? Well, in, in a world where Christianity was more caught than taught, the simple answer is that they lived by such different values to the people around them that their wits were powerful and effective. Uh, in the third century, uh, in AD 256, uh, the bishop Cyprian uh, wrote, Brother brethren, we are philosophers not in words but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our breath, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. As the early church expanded into the hostile environment of the Roman Empire, people looked much more closely at how Christians lived then they listened to what Christians said. And in fact, if the two things didn't match up, then they didn't listen at all. And for these Christians, the chief virtue, the chief virtue of all of the virtues, was something they called crescentius. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. That's the Latin word from which you get the English word patience. And they practiced a, a, a Greek Hypomenon xenon, a Greek phrase literally meaning patient training. Or, I think I prefer the translation, alien endurance. They had alien endurance. And in order to understand this alien endurance, 
important to understand that in most human cultures and societies, patience is most definitely not a virtue. It is for weak people. Uh, in hierarchical cultures, patience is for sage. It's not for important people, not for powerful people. Powerful, high-status people get what they want, and they get it now. Now, um, as some of you might already know, I'm a great fan of uh, Jane Austen's Baker films. Um, and although Pride and Prejudice and Emma are not based on Game of Thrones, uh, you can still see how patience uh, would be perceived as weakness in a class-stratified society. And in those cultures, uh, even the most gentle and mild-mannered of characters are allowed to be impatient when dealing with servants. For example, uh, Mr. Bingley and uh, Mr. Woodhouse, although loving and kind and patient, it's quite okay for them to issue a sharp, Now, man! when speaking to a servant. And the phrase, make haste, make haste, is always said to a less powerful person in response to the needs or demands of a more powerful person. Servants can stand in the corner for hours doing nothing, just waiting for an order. But powerful people wait for nothing. Their slightest order is hated for immediately. But the Christians of the early church knew that patience was important because God is patient. God is patient, working out his purposes in our lives and in this world patiently. As in the fields, as in the gardens, so too in the kingdom. It is only with patience that fruit is grown and that the harvest is brought. In the Gospels, Jesus is patient and kind, waiting as a servant, even in these on blind beggars, asking, what do you be seeking? The Father is strangely patient, alien endurer, uh, enduring steadfastly even with the wicked, sending them rain and sunshine, food and drink, generous even to the ungrateful. And therefore, as God's people, as Christ's representatives, we too must be patient, and patient in all of these things. We don't know exactly what this looked like in the lives of those early Christians, but we can make some, some pretty well-informed guesses from the writings that survive. We, we can picture them as being patient with one another, waiting on each other and willing to forgive and to keep on forgiving. With respect to friends, patient, able to overlook a slight, not easily offended. With respect to their tongues, not so quick to speak as to not think first. To be patient in conversation. In business, patient with those who owed them money. Patient with the poor, willing to cancel a debt. 
If they were slaves, they were patient with exasperating masters and therefore loyal even when they had the opportunity to slack off or pay back or revenge. And if they were slave owners, patient with their slaves, understanding with those who might be slow to learn, gentle with those who may be impatient, not quick-tempered, not hot-headed, not kind. Patience was how you demonstrated the love of Christ as a radically counter-culture virtue in their hierarchical honor-shame culture. And patience as a virtue in their hands made our brothers and sisters of old a very practical people. Um, in this period of history that we're looking at, there were many epidemics and two major pandemic uh, plagues, the, uh, the, uh, the Antonine Plague of uh, AD 166-172, and also what's remembered as the Cyprian Plague of um, uh, um, 251-270 AD. Um, unprecedented times happen regularly. They didn't laugh last night. Thank you for laughing, Kevin. <coughs> the, the pagan response to plagues was for each affected town to send a delegation uh, to famous shrines of various gods and goddesses. These delegations came to the, sh to the shrine, shrines armed with money, because they didn't have a lot of it, and with questions for the gods to answer. Typically, why has this happened and what should we do about it? And at the shrines, there were spokespeople, oracles, and prophets who'd wait for auspicious times in order to consult with the gods through various means and mechanisms. The answers they received would be relayed to poets who would compose intricate and indeed often incredibly ambiguous poetry containing the answers. And in response to the Antonine Plague of uh, the AD 160s, the Oracle of Claros ordered the delegation from the small town of, of Caesarea Trachetta to respond to the plague with various acts of purification and liturgy. For example, they were to draw water from seven carefully prepared fountains and sprinkle the water on their houses. They were also to erect a large statue of Apollo on the plain outside of their town, um, a statue of the god Apollo armed with a bow in a threatening position and when they'd done this, they were told the plague would be shot away. The pagan response to disasters was always cultic, symbolic, and tailored to the culture and society of the day so as to reinforce pagan cultural identity. The responses were never ethical, moral, practical, or anything that we would recognize as successful in the sense of speaking out against injustice or oppression. But Christian responses were ethical and practical and prophetic. When plague struck the North African city of Carthage in uh, the 250s, uh, the church of Carthage, Carthage responded very differently to the pagans around them. The church was recovering at that point in time from a season of very intense persecution. Uh, and uh, it was a very sensitive time when the plague broke out. The illness, which may have been measles, 
violently ill and killed large numbers of people. The pagans who could leave, did leave, they left immediately. Those that, for any reason, couldn't leave, tried to protect themselves by throwing into the street any disease-affected person in their houses, whether dead or alive. Anti-pagan activists were protesting against this thing, claiming that they must be responsible for this killing uh, by way of irritating the public. The Bishop of Carthage, Cyprius, called uh, in that town, he called the Christians together and they read sacred scriptures and they prayed. He taught them and they prayed for the plague and they died. Not only did they not throw their sick people into the streets, but rather they collected the sick from the streets and took care of them, whether pagan or Christian, giving them food and water, washing them, cleaning them, helping them, praying for healing, waiting on them. And the church responded. Well, uh, many things might stand out for us um, as we consider these things this morning, but here's a concluding thought. Our recent reading of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians has reminded us that we cannot say that we are concerned for souls if we are not also concerned for God, for matter matters to God. To dislocate spiritual concerns from material ones is Gnostic, not Christian. More on that next week. The, the early Christians did not proclaim the gospel in the streets, nor did they invite outsiders to their worship services. All that, and I'm not saying we shouldn't, I'm just saying they didn't. But they didn't. All that outsiders saw was their love doing the looking after the poor, being patient with one another and with outsiders, taking in orphans. And the outsiders responded, according to the Christian writer Tertullian, with vide, look, look at how they love one another. The gospel message was tangible, embodied in their hearts. Uh, well, uh, next week, um, the birth of the Bible and the Lord be with you.